Welcome to the Pandemic Tech Podcast, bringing you the untold story of public health workers and technology entrepreneurs leading the field of pandemic response. I'm your host, Tavia Gilbert. Spring is bursting in Brooklyn. The days are getting longer, the willow tree branches outside my window are budding green, and the birds at my fire escape feeder are back in full force. Along with the pleasure of the sights and smells of a fresh new season, come memories of spring in New York exactly one year ago. While spring 2021 has many of us anxiously awaiting our COVID vaccinations, spring 2020 had many of us anxiously awaiting the results of our COVID tests. Since the pandemic became every day to everybody, I wonder, listeners, how many times you have gotten tested for COVID? Was it easy to find a testing site? How long did you have to wait in line? Did you have to stick a Q-tip up your nose so far it felt like you were scraping your brain, or did you get a throat swab? I'm sure, like me, you can recall all those details. Now, a few more questions that you might never have thought before to consider. Do you know where that testing sample went after it left the testing site? Do you know who handled the sample? How many people handled it? What about how it was disposed of? Disease testing has never been more a part of our day-to-day lives, just as constant awareness of a worldwide infectious disease threat has never been more a part of our lives. Even with this presence, like me, you might never have thought to look under the hood of the testing process. The handful of times I've been tested for COVID, I returned home to wait for results, and fortunately, I tested negative each time, but I didn't consider all the people working to bring me the results, their protocols and procedures, or how they stayed safe while handling all those infectious disease samples. In this episode of the Pandemic Tech Podcast, we bring you an exploration of biosafety and biosecurity, practices that have become intensely personal for us all over the last 12 months, whether we realized it or not. Today, we'll get to know two biosafety and biosecurity specialists who manage the safe handling and processing of live infectious disease pathogens like COVID that threaten the safety and health of citizens across the globe. I have had the opportunity of working with fungi, bacteria, viruses, and also to include this beautiful aspect of biosafety and biosecurity. Meet Luis Alberto Ochoa Carrera, Pandemic Tech Senior Advisor and the head of one of the busiest epidemiological surveillance and research laboratories in the fifth most populous city in the world, the Mexican Institute for Social Security in Mexico City, or EAMS. So we provide medical healthcare services for more than 50 million people in the country. And in addition, we are the largest social security institution in Latin America. So a normal day at EAMS, we process more than 700,000 clinical analysis samples, more than 50,000 emergency interventions, and more than 60,000 radio diagnosis studies just in a normal day. However, we also need to add all the work that is done in blood bank labs 
as well as other types of services that we normally do, such as epidemiological surveillance for several pathogens, such as HIV, respiratory viruses, other blood-borne detections for looking for new viruses. Carrera is a world-renowned expert in the field of biosafety and biosecurity, practices that are an integral part of all public health systems and of global health security. So first of all, it is important to understand which type of activities do we normally have at our institutions. And I'm not talking just in Mexico. I am talking in every country. So every country has a public health system. And the first component would be the epidemiological surveillance. And this is a great aid in terms of detecting emerging and re-emerging pathogens or diseases in some region or countries around the world. And this is important because if we share on time this information, other countries can be prepared in order to better respond to these type of threats. The second component that we had in our public health systems is the routine testing. And the routine testing in terms of how is the health of our population. And I mean our population in terms of some non-communicable diseases, such as diabetes, such as cancer, such as metabolic diseases. The biosafety and biosecurity is part of the same public health system because it doesn't matter if we are handling an infectious pathogen or apparently a healthy sample from a patient because we only detect or test for some diseases or some pathogens. But every sample should be handled as potentially infectious because we don't know which type of pathogens are in these samples or specimens. But what are biosafety and biosecurity exactly? Biosafety would be all the techniques, the methodologies, the procedures, the practices that we use for protecting us from the pathogens, for working safely in our laboratories. And biosecurity, I would refer as the practices, the techniques, the methodologies, all the SOPs and other stuff that we use for protecting the pathogens from us. Wait, why do we need to protect pathogens from us? Because sometimes, not always, sometimes people can have not very good intentions when using these biological materials. And unfortunately, this is something that we have been doing also with the chemicals and with other radioactive compounds. So we need to protect our community, the environment, and of course, the interests of different countries as we are thinking from a global perspective of One Health according to the WHO concept. Listeners to last week's episode will remember the concept of One Health, or the collaborative efforts of multiple disciplines working locally, nationally, and globally to attain optimal health for people, animals, and our environment. The importance of biosecurity for people, plants, and animals has never been made more apparent than over the past year. Pandemic Tech co-founder Dr. Andrew Nerlinger explains... 
you know, what if someone were to use SARS-CoV, the virus that causes COVID-19 in some kind of a bad way or try to spread it? These are the kind of issues that we weren't really expecting to take on at the beginning of the pandemic tech, but they have become part of what we talk about now. There's no evidence that COVID was a result of anything intentional or any even an accidental release. But I think what it does highlight is the fact that the potential for that exists. And you look at the types of viruses and the types of bacteria that are being held in labs across the world, most famously smallpox, which technically is being held in two labs in the world only, the CDC in Atlanta and Vector in Russia. But nowadays you can actually find the genetic sequence of smallpox. How feasible is it to actually kind of create smallpox in a lab? These are issues that are new to this health security space, but that are gonna become bigger and bigger deals. Robust biosafety and biosecurity measures require the use of all existing resources, including human resources, which has the greatest impact. And the COVID-19 pandemic has highlighted the imperative for not only lab personnel, but all healthcare workers who might come into contact with deadly pathogens to be well-trained in biosafety and biosecurity procedures before an emergency. As soon as the first cases of COVID were found in Mexico, Carrera and his team's work essentially doubled overnight as they added coronavirus tests to their normal workload. Remember, they were already processing over 800,000 non-COVID lab samples each day. They needed to determine proper protocols and processes for working with samples potentially carrying SARS-CoV-2, and they needed to do it fast. Carrera and his lab weren't alone. Biosafety and biosecurity workers all over the world felt the same urgency. But for years, they'd been preparing for a mission like this by creating a strong global network of experts ready to answer the call. My name is Maureen Ellis, and I'm the executive director with the International Federation of Biosafety Associations. The IFBA is an international, non-governmental, not-for-profit organization made up of 47 different national and regional professional biosafety associations from all around the world. And we're really a global collective of organizations and individuals who are trying to work together with people on the front lines, especially in laboratories, to ensure that they remain safe, their communities remain safe from the infectious diseases that they're working with. When COVID struck, this international collective immediately went into action. I think our global biosafety community really came together at the very beginning and started working together in terms of dealing with the increased need for laboratory diagnostics, for example. There was a huge ramp up in the need for laboratories who could conduct these tests in terms of infrastructure, laboratory technologists, the biosafety and biosecurity practices that go along with ramping up diagnostic infrastructure. That needed to happen very quickly and our biosafety community responded very quickly in terms of training new personnel in how to safely handle all of these samples that are coming across their laboratories, in terms of designing the new laboratory infrastructure to handle the new types of tests that were coming forward to their countries. So they responded very quickly and they really shared lessons with each other. Social media tools proved invaluable in the effort to coordinate a response, share expertise, and address global challenges, such as shortages in personal protective equipment, PPE, or implementing new testing protocols. 
we immediately set up a COVID-19 biosafety Facebook group. We had five or 600 of our professionals around the world sharing their experiences and how they overcame certain challenges, both within a country and even across regions. People were asking all kinds of questions and everybody was responding with their ideas and how they approached it. So there was a lot of good exchange. Did the danger of the coronavirus pandemic take Ellis by surprise? Or had she already anticipated that a global infectious disease might eventually cost millions of lives? I was quite surprised. I mean, I knew that it would spread globally, having worked in the field for many years and knowing how infectious diseases can spread. But the extent of the magnitude, I think, surprised us all. Closing down travel, all of these different types of responses, I think, is something that even in our wildest dreams, we had not imagined. Even though we spent many years preparing for this, trying to make sure that we did have the programs and policies in place, I certainly didn't imagine that it would come to what it has. Even though the magnitude of COVID was as much a surprise to Ellis and to Carrera as it might have been to you and me, both of these biosecurity experts had long prepared for the worst. And that preparation paid off. So with SARS-CoV-2, we face a very similar situation compared with the 2009 H1N1 influenza. So we realized that we already had these specific SOPs for respiratory triage for handling infectious substances in biosafety cabinets in our labs, how to transport these biological samples from one institution to another one. So I would say that at some point we were prepared for facing a pandemic such as SARS-CoV-2. Carrera's rigorous training prepared him to respond to the new challenge of COVID-19. His mentor, Dr. Carinda Franco, with whom he used to work at Mexico Secretariat of Health, Institute of Epidemiological Diagnosis and Reference, had taught him the importance of anticipating all possibilities, to think through every worst-case scenario and plan for a response. And she mentioned me, Luis, you need to be aware of all the possible and potential situations that can affect your normal operations. So you will need to prevent floodings, electrical storms, intrusion alert, fires, earthquakes, all type of possible events. And that's why we start working on an incident command and respond system so that we can distribute all our existing resources and try not to stop our normal activities, which indeed was something that happened to us during this COVID-19 outbreak, because our first big deal was, okay, let's try to contain the SARS-CoV-2, try to detect the potential and suspicious cases of SARS-CoV-2. Carrera, who at the time of the COVID-19 outbreak in Mexico City had only been in a position of leadership at Eames for two months, suddenly found himself facing a compound calamity. Then our second big deal was, okay, we have a measles outbreak in Mexico City. Oops, which outbreak will I need to contain first? Indeed, both. But part of the containment measures taken at that time helped us to mitigate this potential of transmission of measles disease because also it's an airborne pathogen. We still have cases. We are running out of supplies, but we have 
learned with the past of several pandemics, such as influenza 2009, the Zika and chikungunya outbreaks, as well as all the measures taken for preventing an eventual introduction of Ebola virus disease in the Americas. Carrera's training didn't only prepare him to handle the demands of COVID and multiple simultaneous disease outbreaks. In fact, it prepared him for one of the most terrifying days of his life, a day that highlights the courage biosecurity and biosafety leaders must bring to their work. September 19th is a well-known date in Mexico. It's the anniversary of the 1985 Mexico City earthquake, one of the largest in the city's recorded history. Measuring 8.1 on the Richter scale, the quake claimed the lives of between 5,000 and 45,000 people. Many were never found, caused extensive damage to city buildings, and left more than 250,000 people homeless. Carrera was only a few months old at the time, so he has no memory of that day. But 32 years later, on September 19, 2017, when he was working at the National Institute for Epidemiological Diagnosis and Reference, he experienced an unforgettable event. So, as a part of this special date for us, this celebration, we made an earthquake drill in Mexico City. This drill was like 11 a.m. and everything went very smoothly. Everything went very well. So by almost 1 p.m. of that day, we go back to our places to continue our normal operations. That afternoon, he recalls, his lab was working with tuberculosis and rickettsia, the virus that causes typhus, spotted fever, and a host of other human diseases. So I was feeling good at that time. And I said, well, why don't you put some music? Let's go in to try to relax a little bit and uh, let's enjoy the rest of the afternoon. But suddenly I, I began jumping in my desk and I realized that this was not just my imagination. This was just a big earthquake. The anniversary earthquake was another big one, measuring 7.1 on the Richter scale. Immediately all the alarms start sounding. Everything was shaking. You will hear people crying, shouting, and it was like a little bit complicated situation. You use the word complicated. It was complicated. To me, it sounds terrifying. Now I can share this story with a smile on my face, but at that time, it was a little bit shocking because I didn't know if I was going to die. The earthquake shook Mexico City for a full 20 seconds. It was a little bit shocking because we didn't have any previous warning. Normally, when the alarms start sounding, that means that you will have at least one minute for going to a secure zone and then try to do all the necessary things in order to be aware of this earthquake. The people that are in the first floor and second floor can evacuate without any problem according to our plans. However, we were on the third floor. The lack of warning made evacuation difficult. But what's worse, lab workers who were actively handling viruses when the earthquake hit had to contain these dangerous pathogens. Luis talks us through what happened next. The first thing that you will need to do is keep calm. That is the first aspect. Please keep calm. 
remove all your contaminated gloves, put it in your container inside of the biosafety cabinet, and then close the slash of the biosafety cabinet. Then you will need to go to the emergency exit, remove all your PPE in the fastest way possible, but taking the necessary precautions for avoiding contamination. And then try to go to a safer zone according to the structure of the buildings. So what I needed to do is, okay, I am the boss here. I need to maintain the calm and try to help as many as possible. So I help those people to go out of those facilities and then try to go to the security point. And after we were doing that, the building was still moving. So by, it was like after two or three minutes, we finally go out of the building but even when his team had safely evacuated the building, the danger for Carrera was far from over. Once the building stopped moving, it was Carrera's responsibility to go back inside to ensure that the infrastructure of the lab was intact, and then to safely remove all of the samples. His priority was to prevent the viruses contained in the lab from spreading to the community at large. And indeed, when we go upstairs, and check all the infrastructure. There were several cracks in some floors, in some walls, but thanks God, it did not affect all our biological materials. I found an autoclave and a freezer in just in the middle of the lab. So it was very funny because of this movement. This was just in the middle of the laboratory. And even when we went downstairs, we can hear cracking, the, the structure was cracking. So it was a little bit shocking. And thanks God, it did not happen something else because if not, we will need to go put our personal protective equipment and try to contain the potential spill and splash of all those biological materials. Carrera was also responsible for making sure that his staff, who had been handling the volatile samples at the time of the earthquake, were unharmed and that they could be isolated for their safety and for the safety of everyone around them. Um, fortunately, people that was working there continue with their healthy condition because they were monitored by the occupational physician for several weeks and no one developed potential symptoms of the pathogens that they were handling there. Carrera was finally able to return home after a five-hour inspection process, but his work was still not done. The next day, he and his team returned to the lab to arrange distribution of their lab samples and diagnostic activities to other facilities, both in Mexico City and across the country. In the end, the earthquake on September 19, 2017, killed 370 people, injured more than 6,000, and caused 3.8 billion Mexican pesos in damage. But because of Carrera's courageous and calm leadership, and because of his staff's ability to implement their disaster response training, fortunately, no outbreaks of tuberculosis or typhus compounded the damage. In crises, most people are thinking first of self-preservation and getting as far away from the threat as possible. People like you run toward the threat. They run toward the danger. And while I can hear you describe that you had training and you were anticipating crises and your focus was on the health and safety of your team and containment. 
at some point you are human and things are frightening, whether it's a crisis like an earthquake or a crisis like COVID, you're handling very dangerous materials. So I guess my question is two parts. How do you yourself cope with fear? And is there a need for mental health awareness or mental health services for professionals in your field to help you cope with the human response to terrifying things? I am a very engaged person with my profession, and I am very passionate of all the things that I do. So if I have a goal and my objective is safety first, that means that I will need to transmit to the people that is working with me this part of security. So for me, it was very important that they feel secure. And then I can try to help other people, perhaps in the field, perhaps in other places. And I am a fan of the adrenaline. So I also love adrenaline. And I remember this because I was a Taekwondo practitioner for almost 20 years. So when you told me about fear, I said, well, it is like a sense of adrenaline. But absolutely, before I can help people to do something else, I need to be first secure and have the safety to my person. So that's why this is not strange or I'm not facing an uncertain situation. I will need to help them as soon as my integrity is not under risk. But fear does take a toll on the mental health of biosafety and biosecurity workers, and burnout is a serious problem. There is increasing recognition that support and mental health services do need to be provided and prioritized. Carrera agrees that more mental health training and monitoring of staff is needed. And to answer that need, canine therapy is being introduced to some facilities in an effort to promote mental health and relaxation. Harley, a pug and a co-therapist, has begun to work with exhausted staff in what has already been deemed a wildly successful program. And it is absolutely a fantastic dog. And he went to several hospitals and were in direct contact with the staff that was going into COVID areas to treat the patients. And according to the studies, more than 90% of the staff that received the help from Harley report feeling better after having this contact and, of course, to feel more motivated to continue doing their normal activities. Maureen Ellis shares concern about staff burnout, but offers another valuable perspective. She says that some people tend to cope with the fear by overcompensating in the practices and procedures that they put in place. For example, they might overdesign a laboratory and decide upon overly strict measures because they want to make absolutely sure that nothing goes wrong. But that approach can often backfire because such a high level of restriction can be too difficult to sustain. If you put in place so many practices and procedures, you're actually making it less safe for the worker who has to go through all of these procedures of putting on extra PPE and all of these extra steps. So you have to be comfortable and you have to be confident 
in your decision making in terms of looking at the risk and putting in place measures that are appropriate to that risk. And I think that that only comes with experience. With experience, you start to see different ways of approaching risks and the control measures that you want to put in place. And you're able to sort of play in that gray zone and say, yes, that would actually work. I think that that's a great measure. That's an equivalent level of safety. Let's do that. This problem of overcompensation underscores the importance of mentoring and education, More experienced professionals offering their hard-won expertise to the next generation of biosafety and biosecurity workers. That's why the IFBA has established an international mentoring program in which mentors are partnered with mentees from their own regions. Any individual who holds two of our certifications, so they've demonstrated competency in two technical areas, is eligible to be one of our global mentors. They participate in webinars and colloquium series each month on a different topic and work with their mentee on different subjects throughout the year. And what interests the mentee is of most concern to our mentors. The program has been a great success, bringing together not just mentor-mentee teams from within their home regions, but teams of professionals from across the globe. And they connect with each other. So our mentee-mentor pairs from one region are talking to mentee-mentor pairs from another region. And we just wish that we had more mentors available to all of the requests for individuals who want to participate in the mentoring program. So in this year's cycle, for example, we have 68 individuals participating, but we had to turn away so many more You can imagine our mentors are awfully busy (laughs) being biosafety professionals and they're double certified. So they're very good at what they do. They're in high demand right now. So hopefully we can expand this program a bit more. Carrera is one of IFBA's mentors in the Latin American region. Though his time is scarce, he firmly believes that the effort he invests in the education of other young scientists is well worth it. Education is the basis of all the things that we want to change right now, because right now we have several problems all around the world. Infectious diseases is just one part of that problem. We have also poverty. We have migration challenges. We have the use of emerging technologies. We have right now the human ignorance. We have global warming, the corruption, just for mentioning these type of problems. And if we do not solve them using the general tool that is education, it's going to be very difficult in the coming years. So I would like to contribute in promoting the biosafety and biosecurity, but also I want to contribute in terms of how can we use the existing resources wisely? How can we use all this knowledge and experience? So if most of the countries are having issues, having access to financial support, there are a lot of things that right now can be done with the less financial resources because all the talent is inside us. So I would love to help contributing these healthcare professionals to use their minds in terms of what can we do, what can we create for 
eradicating infectious diseases? How can we better do this training with other countries, with other regions? I would say that would be my biggest contribution. And of course, to also always, always offer my help for each individual that requires my support and assistance. Cross-cultural collaborations have been an integral part of Ellis's life since she was a child. So it makes sense that she prioritizes peer-to-peer education programs and brings experts together across the globe. Her father was a journalist and a journalism teacher, and she sees parallels between his profession and her lifelong work in scientific research, both professions demanding unbiased exploration of facts by discerning, skeptical, critical thinkers. His work also took their family abroad, moving them from their native Canada to East Africa. We grew up on a training center in Tanzania where my father was teaching journalism. And I think that's where my love of working internationally, meeting new people, learning from different experiences, working in different cultures, really stemmed from growing up in an environment like that and from the dedication that he had to his international work as well. Growing up with that openness to new ideas and cross-cultural learning and collaboration also primed Ellis to build global coalitions of biosafety and biosecurity experts. And what those international collaborations drive home to her is that there are no one-size-fits-all solutions in biosafety and biosecurity. So what might work here in Canada doesn't necessarily work or is applicable to a laboratory in Nairobi, for example. We need to be able to look at our own situation locally and do a risk assessment in order to put in place the measures, the practices, the facilities that meet our local needs and our local resources. So if my power is going out six hours a day, I'm not going to rely on a piece of equipment such as a biological safety cabinet to keep me safe when I know that I can't rely on that because I don't have the resources to do so. Rather than focusing on particular devices or practices that every laboratory ought to have, for instance, professionals in this field need to be open to whatever approaches best mitigate risk. So being able to do a risk assessment and say, what other measures can I put in place to keep myself safe based on the local resources that I have? I think that came out as a big challenge. People had some idea But we need to be better at looking at our own situation and thinking critically, thinking outside of the box and coming up with solutions that are more relevant to the exact work that I'm doing and the resources that I have in my own laboratories. Ellis has had many opportunities to see firsthand the creative approaches of workers in a variety of locations across Asia, Africa and the Middle East. One of the most important things I learned was that there are many ways to do biosafety. Here in Canada, we tend to rely on engineering controls a lot in our laboratories in terms of the ventilation system and making sure that air is drawn away from us. We're not breathing in what we're working with, for example. But we found in our travels, for example, across Central Asia that well, they don't have engineering controls yet they work with even more dangerous pathogens on a daily basis. Plague, anthrax, these types of diseases are endemic in their communities. 
and they need to work with them in laboratories that don't have all of these fancy engineering controls. And I can recall first going into these facilities and thinking, well, how are you doing this? Because their laboratory workers were not getting sick. What were they doing correctly that didn't require engineering controls? And they learned how to manipulate work with infectious materials, how to conduct their diagnostic testing in such a careful way that they're not spreading contamination. They don't need this airflow to protect themselves. And I really learned that we can learn from them in terms of what the approaches are. I don't have all the answers. There's all kinds of other approaches out there that I haven't even seen yet. So I think it's very important to look and learn from all areas of the world. In addition to his work as a mentor with Ellis's IFBA, Carrera has also collaborated with Pandemic Tech and Sandia National Laboratories to arrange trainings in biosafety and biosecurity in places like Morocco, Egypt, Algeria, and Somalia. And it's not just healthcare workers that received the benefit of his expertise. He's interested in supporting the health and education of any person who might come into contact with pathogens. In October 2020, he and Pandemic Tech coordinated a training for couriers in Somalia who were transporting biological samples. They were sending thousands of materials that crossed borders and that needed to arrive to this diagnostic laboratory. And what we started working at that time was to create a booklet or a leaflet that can include all the basic and necessary information so that couriers or untrained couriers, such as taxi drivers, motorcyclists, can use that basic information as a guidance. What should I need to do in case of an accidental spill, accidental loss of a package? Follow the basic instructions. Please do not open diagnostic specimens or biological samples. Things like that, like a very basic training. The tools that they developed included a leaflet printed with the help of Sandia National Laboratories in both Somali and English, as well as a virtual training led by Pandemic Tech on the transportation of biological samples. And this was absolutely very beneficial because we use those leaflets and instructions and SOPs and training to reinforce the importance of the COVID-19 crisis at that time in that region. So I would say that the basis of our future generations would be the training and education. So we need to continue moving forward with these efforts. And one of the things that I will not like to hear in the coming years is that what were the lessons learned from SARS-CoV-2? And two or three years later, we will not remember those lessons learned. So it doesn't matter to write books or scientific papers mentioning the lessons learned of influence, the lessons learned of Ebola, the lessons learned of any other pandemic diseases. How are we facing those errors that we met in the past? How are we using that information for preparing our next generations? In addition to deepening the expertise of biosafety and biosecurity professionals around the globe, Ellis hopes one outcome of the pandemic will be to underscore the need and importance of the profession. I feel that our profession is often an invisible part of the healthcare system. 
people are familiar with doctors, with nurses who are responding on the front lines, but biosafety professionals who work in these laboratories doing the diagnostics, research, vaccine development, often remain behind the scenes and invisible. So we're trying to bring their role to the forefront and to advocate for them and to make sure that the general public is more aware of our profession and the role that they're playing in this pandemic. The recognition Ellis hopes for has nothing to do with accolades. She points to the tangible negative consequences when decision makers at national policy levels don't consider the insight and needs of health surveyors. Often when biosafety policies and laws are written without involvement of those in the profession, When they come down the line to the laboratory, they are impractical, unsustainable, and sometimes simply impossible to implement. So I think we really come together and see ourselves as these little champions trying to say, hey, look at us, we're not invisible. We're just as important as doctors, nurses, and everybody else on the front lines. Please include us in what you're doing. More public awareness of biosafety professionals because of COVID testing and vaccinations, might translate into greater inclusion in the policymaking and regulatory process and support for their profession as a career choice. I think the whole issue of hand sanitizers, wearing gloves, wearing respirators, all of these different issues are, of course, key to what we do for biosafety as well. But it's starting to raise awareness amongst the general population of the type of work that we do. And now we see the general public getting an inside view into the work that we do. We feel excited. We feel like, hey, maybe we're making progress. Now we need to look forward. And there's a few ideas that we have in terms of where we want to go next. One of them definitely relates to the biosafety as a profession and making this more of a visible career choice for young scientists. We want to continue with our region to region collaboration. Some of the other ideas relate to equity and inclusion and diversity. We have a new equity coordinating committee and it's led by individuals from around the world who have some expertise in this area. They're focusing right now on age and gender as their priorities, and they want to look at what are the current trends in terms of age, gender, and our biosafety and biosecurity communities. What challenges are they facing? And what are some of the priority actions that we can do moving forward to address any of these challenges and trends that we're seeing within our biosafety and biosecurity communities? So I think you'll see our equity coordinating committee doing a lot more work in that area over the next several years. Despite the toll of the last year, Carrera is also enthusiastic about the future of his profession and about increasing opportunities to collaborate with other international experts, attracting new talent to the field, and better caring for all people across the globe. I love saying that at this time, we are not using a specific country flag. We are using right now our human spirit in terms of how are we dealing with this virus? How are we helping 
our brothers. And I mean our brothers, it doesn't matter if we are like Spanish-speaking countries or English-speaking countries. How are we sharing information? How are we communicating? And how are we applying all these existing resources at our countries, institutions, and states? If you want to do something, you need to cooperate, you need to collaborate, and you will need to open your knowledge. You will need to share things if you want to move forward with any possible project. And right now, under this COVID-19 pandemic, I think that we will need to go back to the basics. And back to the basics in terms of ethical behavior and to be more human beings rather than other type of professionals. First, I will need to be human being for trying to help you. And then we can all together move to the next point. That's such a nice way to wrap the conversation up. Thinking about our common values as human beings, no matter where we come from on the planet, we need to take care of each other. I think we stereotype scientists working in sterile labs, looking at data, as aloof, or maybe even as cold. I hope you feel differently after meeting Luis Ochoa Carrera and Maureen Ellis today. These biosafety and biosecurity professionals are warm caregivers at heart. They have made their careers looking out for the safety of others, those in their own communities and across the world. I think that's truly inspiring. Next week, we bring you more inspiration, this time from some of the technology innovators who partner with Pandemic Tech, problem solvers who show how an innovation ecosystem nurtures creativity and solves real, on-the-ground health problems Here's a preview of that conversation with Dr. Mordrick Chibi, Africa Regional Advisor for Health Innovations at the World Health Organization. I'm always moved by an innovation that answers a need. What do I mean answering a need? When you look at an innovation, especially from an African context, if an innovation is answering to a contextually relevant challenge, for me, it blows me away, no matter how technically sophisticated it is or no matter how simple it is. But for as long as it answers those contextual needs, I'll back it up. We look forward to bringing you the full story in our next episode. In the meantime, if you like today's Pandemic Tech Podcast, we'd be grateful if you'd follow us and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Those simple ways of supporting our program are a great help in reaching new audiences. This has been the Pandemic Tech Podcast. This episode written and produced by Katie Flood and Tavia Gilbert. Executive produced by TalkBox. Music by Alexander Filipiak. Mix and master by Brian Barney. Thanks for listening.